0: Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion
1: is advised. What's a little business between friends? Welcome to episode five of Invisible Choir. I'm your host, Michael Ojibwe. There's a saying in business, if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door. And that's precisely what Joseph McStay did when he started a custom fountain business in Southern California. And when business was finally booming, so too were the foundations of greed and selfishness that would ultimately drive a partner in business to become a partner in crime. We finally have answers in what many considered the mystery of the last decade, and the details are disturbing. So turn the headphones up and settle in, because this one's pretty crazy.
2: Do you believe there's any possibility that that home and the scene inside that home was staged? That's one theory, and of course we've looked at that. Um, we
3: don't see anything like that. We don't have any hard evidence to indicate that. But we keep that in the back
1: of our minds. Starting a business is said to be one of the most stressful things you will encounter in the workforce world. It takes precious time, lots of money, and the right people backing you to be successful. But sometimes. If you add the wrong person into the mix, things can go terribly wrong. Horribly wrong, in fact. There's the chance you'll have someone embezzle hard-earned funds, or maybe someone wants the financial gain all for themselves. Be weary of who you trust. You never know just who will stab you in the back or in the front. In 2010, 40-year-old Joseph McStay was enjoying the success of owning his own business. His family, made up of his wife, 43-year-old Summer, and two sons, 4-year-old Gianni and 3-year-old Joseph Jr., had just moved into their new home in Fallbrook, California. Joseph's business, Earth Inspired Products, created custom water fountains and waterfalls for the interior and exterior of homes and businesses alike. While he had found success, it hadn't come easy. There were instances of friendships and business relationships falling apart, but that wasn't enough to stop Joseph from pushing forward. He loved what he did and wasn't going to let bad deals or people ruin what he had been working so hard for. A man by the name of Daniel Cavanaugh was one of those business associates. Early in 2009, Joseph had offered to buy Daniel out of business. He didn't like what he had seen from Daniel and would rather the company not tank because of another's wrongdoings. This infuriated Daniel to the point he began making threats to destroy Joseph's business if his demands were not met. The two had many thoroughly documented exchanges in the weeks before the partnership dissolved. Daniel. The later you respond and deal with this, the worse it's gonna be. Joseph. Now I, Summer, and kids know the real you and what you would potentially do to harm me and my family. You're a great guy, Dan. Fucking sad. Daniel decided to double down. So now
4: that you know how serious I am and what I'm capable of, you can make a better decision on how to end this.
1: The threats made were baseless, and life went on as usual. Joseph turned to his friend Charles Merritt, or Chase as everyone knew him. Together, the duo began building the foundation of an empire. But on February 4th, 2010, something would happen inside the McStay family home, something that until recently may have been one of the largest modern day American mysteries. On February 8, 2010, an Isuzu trooper was towed away from a parking lot just two blocks away from the U.S.-Mexico border in the town of San Ysidro, California. At the time, it wasn't uncommon to find abandoned vehicles in this area. But just a week later, on February 15th, Michael McStay reported that his brother and his brother's family were all missing from their Fallbrook home. Two days earlier, Michael had gone to his brother Joseph's home to find the dogs in the backyard barking and no one answering the door. He crawled inside the house through a window that had been cracked, but found no one inside. The only suspicious area in the home was in the living room, where a TV was on and there were two children-sized bowls of popcorn sitting on the couch. On February 19th, San Diego Sheriff's Department obtained a search warrant for the home in order to look for anything that might point officials in the direction of where the family could be. A neighbor's surveillance video captured a vehicle leaving the home on the evening of February 4th, although the vehicle type and its occupants could not be determined. After an extensive search of the home, law enforcement found no signs of forced entry and no sign that the home was the place of a crime scene. They theorized early on that the family likely took off on vacation and hadn't notified anyone of their plans. While that's typically a rare occurrence, it was completely possible in this case. The San Diego Sheriff's Department asked Interpol to put a bolo or be on the lookout for the family. But something didn't sit right with Joseph's brother, Michael, and the McStay family, as well as family members on Summer's side. Michael hired a private investigative team to walk through the house with him and Summer's younger brother to document everything they found. I ran his
3: credit report, sorry, TRW. But I had to get my brother. <laughs> this is, so this is his, well, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just not like, you know what I mean, yeah. it's like, I, I took a, I took a, in here there was a camera. You know, it's missing, right here, it was right here. It was her camera. Remember all the, pi- the pictures that she was taking? The ca- her camera was right here. So I asked the detectives, I go, hey man, am I getting in trouble if I take anything? They said, no. I said, okay, so I took the SD card out.
1: You know, there's like there's like 20 SD cards somewhere
2: around
3: here. You know that? Really? Dude, ever since they were born, she goes crazy. Oh, Dude, She'd I be bet she's going you crazy. They're... And I was going to ask you about that. Well, keep fishing. Because you know what? If we can find them, give them me. I'll back them all up. I'll send you guys a USB thing. Well, my mom said we shouldn't go through this stuff until... Um, the detectives just told me that this is not a crime scene, uh, and I can do whatever I want. Maybe to. you and your your mom and my mom can come in here. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, to. because they need to like go sort through all the pictures and stuff. So those pictures were from the. Now look, all the surfboards are here. So we didn't go surfing in Mexico, guys. <laughs> and Jonah even told the detectives exactly how many surfboards he has. Okay. Now look here. Is the double stroller here? Kevin yeah, the double, double. The double stroller, stroller is here. And don't go anywhere without their double stroller.
1: Michael, Summer's brother, and the investigative team, talked with neighbors and the most information they had gotten was that a neighbor had seen a truck parked outside of the family home the evening they presumably went missing.
5: Okay. Now, somebody seen the vehicle to leave
0: that night. I don't know
3: who. Now that's what the tech-
0: Do you know what they look like? The no, lady. No, no.
3: Well the lady two doors down, three doors early maybe, she said she called the detective and pulled him away. She remembered that she had seen a big truck, white truck, pull cool up here. A white truck? Yeah, big Chase just white... has a white truck with a gray truck. It's an old SBC truck. There you go. And it's a Chevy 2500 She's... with a box truck on back. She said that she called the detective when she said she remembers. How long ago that. did she call the detective? I don't know. Well, which door is it? Let's, door. Door. Let's go knock on her door. I'll go talk to her right now. She's got some kids and stuff. Oh, two doors down. I'll leave you the lady with the talk on the
1: news. Based on the description of the truck, Michael instantly recognized it as Chase's, Joseph's longtime friend and business partner. Chase Merritt eventually talked with investigators and acknowledged that he did see Joseph and the McStay family the evening they disappeared. He was the last known person to see them alive. Chase talked about being interviewed by police and what he remembered from that day.
5: The standard questions, you know, just do I know anything about them disappearing? Um... Did I have anything to do with it, um, just just the standard questions, you know. probably they asked everybody. Yeah, um, when he left Rancho Cucamonga, nobody else, uh, although I, th- I think somebody there's another person or two that he talked to, I'm not sure. Um, but you were the
2: last person he saw.
5: I'm definitely the last person he saw.
1: Chase recalled that both he and Joseph had met up for lunch in Rancho Cucamonga to talk business. It was a good meeting, because Chase had found out that business was booming. With clients in local Paul Mitchell salons, all the way to Saudi Arabia, things were going quite well. It wasn't until Michael called him, questioning Chase about whether he had seen Joseph, Summer, or the boys, that he felt that something was off. All Chase could recall is that he received a phone call that evening around 8.30 p.m. from Joseph's phone. But he chose not to answer because Joseph was known to talk for long periods of time, and Chase was watching a movie at home, trying to relax. The leads into the disappearance of the McStay family soon fell dead. Maybe, just maybe, they were on vacation. But as the years passed, things began to look grim. And it wouldn't be until a fateful day in 2013 that a motorcyclist passing through the Mojave Desert just north of Victorville, California, stumbled onto something truly shocking.
0: Good morning. On Monday at about 10 o'clock in the morning, we received a call from an off-road motorcycle rider identified that he found what he believed to be human remains in an area north of Stoddard Wells Road next to Quarry Road north of the city of Victorville. He called our dispatch center and a deputy sheriff responded. With the RP's assistance the deputy found those remains and within a short time a coroner's investigator arrived as well. They began checking that area and were able to locate what they believed to be some human remains. We then had the forensic anthropologist respond to the scene to determine whether or not those remains were in fact human. During their investigation, they were able to find two shallow grave sites with a total of four bodies.
1: For all of the years that investigators had been searching, It was ultimately a motorcyclist stopping for a quick bathroom break in the middle of the desert who had found what hundreds of professionals and man hours couldn't. It felt like defeat for both the McStay family and Summer's relatives. This was probably it. The bodies found were most likely those of Joseph, Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. Michael, Joseph's younger brother, stood shoulder to shoulder with investigators and the sheriff to speak to the press about the findings.
3: Uh, Good morning. It's not really the... uh, the... uh, outcome... we were looking for. But, um it gives us courage to know that they're together and they're in a better place
1: it's never an easy thing to have to go through as a family member of someone missing you want to stay strong and have the utmost hope for a safe return but that's not always the case and in moments such as what Michael was going through at the podium, it was completely okay and understandable for him to show his emotions and vulnerability. The biggest concern was finding out what happened to the missing McStay family and who was ultimately responsible for the crime.
3: But we're going to find this individual... Of individuals, I know that the sheriffs, the FBI, everybody wants to bring this to justice. And if it's the last thing I do, I want to. I just want to know that, you know, when it's over. (laughs) Um.
1: That's all. While the years had passed, the McStay family did all they could trying to find out what had happened to their loved ones. Joseph's father, Patrick, dug into any and all information possible, even writing a book detailing his investigation entitled, McStay's Taken Too Soon, A True Story. Dr. Alexis Gray, the forensic anthropologist who handled the burial site, didn't have much to work with. The family's remains had spent nearly four years in the harsh, unforgivable desert. Most of the clues had eroded, along with any hope of finding who was ultimately to blame.
4: They were buried in such a manner that animals tore at their remains. That they decomposed to almost nothing but a set of a few bones.
1: And just like that, the case went cold and it would take investigators an additional three years before they had someone in custody for the tragic deaths of Joseph, Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. And the person they arrested was someone the family least expected.
0: Charles Chase Merritt was identified as the suspect responsible for the death of Joseph, Summer, Gianni, and Joseph McStay. There's no information to suggest there were any other suspects involved in this crime. Chase Merritt was a business associate of Joseph McStay.
1: During the announcement, Michael again spoke emotionally about his brother and their family, taken away far too soon by someone they trusted, someone they considered to be far too close. Someone that Joseph had gone out of his way to help during a low time in that person's life.
3: I had said. That uh, I just wanted to see it through to the end. Um, Joseph was a great brother, a great father. He would have done anything to protect those boys in summer. And um, here's—he was—he tried to help Chase and provide work for this guy. And this is how he was, you know, repaid. But. I know he's in a better place. I know they're in a better place. I know that sounds a little trite, but it, this, this gives our family a little bit more closure, opportunity to heal and move forward, and um, he'll get what he's got coming to him.
1: For the elder McStay, these new developments seem to come as quite a shock. A shock that made the already heavy burden of an unsolved murder even heavier when a trusted family friend and business partner became the principal suspect.
5: A lot of people will say it's like lifting a ton off your shoulders. And I said, no, it was more to me like a boulder falling on me.
1: Patrick had to question whether or not this information could possibly be true. After all I've seen through the years uh, and the information we found, I still can't say yes, but I I can definitely say I wonder. With Chase in custody, investigators had to look through all of the evidence, from where this all started to its final resting place there in the Mojave Desert. The home was clear and showed no signs of foul play. It had never been designated a crime scene, and that's why Michael, Summer's brother, and the investigative team were able to go through the home. But remember what was in the house when Michael showed up. Two child-sized bowls of popcorn on the couch, the TV playing, and the dogs still in the backyard barking. Whoever entered that home was familiar to the family. There were no signs of forced entry. It was as if any other mundane evening in the McStay household had been forever frozen in time, and the family just abruptly vanished. But it was what was in the shallow graves that most intrigued investigators. In the second grave alongside the bodies of Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. lay a three-pound sledgehammer. Looking back at the interview Chase had done with CNN, it appeared to Patrick that his son's business associate knew the area the bodies were found and knew it well. Very visible from the freeway. I hear him telling you and describing the
5: area perfectly.
1: and telling you he knows that area really well. And when asked what he would say to Chase if given the chance. I wouldn't ask him anything. there be one person come out of that room. Chase's trial was scheduled for January of 2019. Prosecutor Britt Imes wanted to show that the deaths of the four McStays was cold, calculated, and driven by greed and self-interest.
4: How does this family of four disappear off the face of the earth? How does this family of four, a husband who's running a business, a mom who's raising her two kids, fixing up a house they just bought recently how do they just disappear just up and gone ladies and gentlemen the evidence in this case will show you not only the how but the why and especially the who the how is that each member of this family that you see here Joseph McStay, 40 years old, his wife, Summer, their two kids, Gianni, who was four years old, and Joe Jr., who four days before they were murdered had just turned three. The how is that they were beaten about the head and face until they died. The why boils down to a basic human emotion something that we discussed during during jury selection. The why boils down to greed. The why boils down to greed and greed's child fraud.
1: Though the opening statements cast doubt on the prosecution's claim that Chase Merritt was responsible for the gruesome killings, the defense believed they had the proof needed to demonstrate that it wasn't Chase at all who was behind the slayings. What they claimed to have would show that the accused wasn't behind the murders at all. They sought to prove that a former business associate of Joseph's was behind the murders all along. Remember Daniel Kavanaugh? That was the defense's Denny suspect. For those unfamiliar with Denny Law, it states that a defendant has to show motive, opportunity, and some evidence to directly connect the third person to the crime. If those three requirements are not met, the defense cannot even suggest that a third party might be responsible for the crimes charged. The defense alleged that Daniel had made threats to Joseph after their partnership had soured. Even more seemingly damning were comments he supposedly made just 10 days after the McStay's remains were found. According to the information the defense gathered, Kavanaugh claimed during a business conflict that, quote,
4: I know how to make people disappear.
1: And that they would, quote,
4: Find your bones in the desert.
1: The man then told his neighbor, who took the information to the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and promptly filed a report. A damning claim. One that could tip the trial on its side completely. If it were true. But for Patrick... This didn't at all seem like a possibility, especially for as long as Patrick had known Daniel.
5: Um, I know Kevin. I met Dan years ago when Joey first met him, when he first started with Joey doing the uh, the setting up the uh, website and everything for uh, EIP. Uh, what a lot of people didn't know, and it's in the book, is, is originally I was Joey's partner in, in the book, or not in the book, in, in the, the business. I was. Joey had filed a bankruptcy um, a year prior so, and I know that because I paid the lawyer. Um, but um, we did it because I at the time I, I was very well financially uh, sound, and I was kind of like the silent partner and it had all the credit lines set up and everything, and that's how EIP started, and that's how I met Dan. Well, Joey and I had a lot of conversations about merit. There's no, no question on that. And uh, yeah, I think he's very capable of it. But Dan Cavanaugh, I, I hate to say it, but I'm going to put it in what I would call, you know, I grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, and I'd put it in to me struck me when, when I met him and he was young. He was about 18, 19 years old. He was kind of like, to me, a, what you would call a street punk. He uh, had a big mop, but he
3: didn't have anything else.
1: According to Patrick, Daniel Kavanaugh was all bark and no bite. On the tenth day of the trial, Dr. Alexis Gray, the forensic anthropologist, was called to testify. During her testimony, she went over the course of digging through the grave sites, and what condition the bodies were discovered in. Joseph's body was in a deeper grave, and when he was found, his body was wrapped in a blanket, tied together with insulated wire. The injuries he had suffered were a fracture to the left parietal and occipital bones, a fracture of the base of the skull, a fracture of the right parietal bone, a fracture of the right tibia, and fracture to the right anterior third rib. Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr.'s bodies were located in a much shallower grave, one that was prone to animals finding the remains and dragging them hundreds of feet away from where they were initially buried. What we know is that Summer was so savagely beaten, her injuries suggested her final moments were of unfathomable horror. She suffered multiple fractures to her mandible, so severe it was found in three separate pieces. She also suffered a fracture of the left parietal bone, two fractures of the right frontal bone, and a fracture of the left frontal bone. The fracture that occurred to the parietal bone was so deep, Summer's hair was actually embedded into the skull. Prosecutor Imes could only imagine what both of the young boys had endured. You
0: don't need to kill those two kids unless you know that they can identify who the killer is. And it was violent. Violent with the use of a heavy object similar to the sledgehammer found in grave with Summer. It wasn't just one debilitating blow to incapacitate someone and remove them from the scene it was blow after blow after blow to a child's skull a three-year-old and a four-year-old that is an intentional killing that is willful deliberate and premeditated
1: Their wounds demonstrated complete overkill against two little boys who didn't even have a chance to fight back, no one to help them, because their two guardians had fallen. Only a monster could have done such a thing. asking yourself why exactly Chase was the prime suspect. What motive could he possibly have had? During their investigation, they found large sums of money coming from the business bank account. Before the McStays disappeared, there were also a few larger withdrawals. But this is where they believe the whole thing started, that Chase had possibly been forging checks and paying himself in large sums of money. And when Joseph found out, Fired Chase during their February 4th brunch business meeting. The checks that were forged from the account after the family had gone missing had come from the company's QuickBooks account. Typically, numbers like that wouldn't be suspicious for a large business such as Earth-inspired products. But the fact is, these withdrawals came after the family went missing. These type of later withdrawals would suggest that someone was trying to get whatever they could out of the accounts before they were locked by investigators. Prior to McStay's disappearance, it was discovered that Chase owed Joseph roughly $42,000, a potentially strong motive for wanting to rid himself of the problems he was inevitably facing. The prosecution alleged that Chase arrived at the home that night to try and right some of the wrongs with Joseph and that a significant argument broke out. And this is where Chase allegedly picked up the sledgehammer in the kitchen the family was having remodeled. When he swung, he overcompensated and struck Joseph in the right rib, which was found to be broken during his autopsy. What significance would his right rib play in all of this? Chase just so happens to be left-handed. Strikes would occur either straight on top of or to the right side of anything or anyone facing him. A lot of questions were also raised about where the crimes took place. Remember, Michael and the investigative team they hired didn't find anything inside the house. Neither did the investigators at the San Diego Sheriff's Department. It was alleged that the crime actually did take place in the house. There may have been no blood found at the time because the McStay family was in the middle of remodeling. The carpet had been entirely torn out and replaced with vinyl flooring easy to clean up after any mess was made. And then there was the fact that a neighbor of the family remained adamant that Chase's vehicle was parked outside of the home the evening they seemingly disappeared. Chase's whereabouts during that time remain unknown. While he claimed he was at home watching a movie, the fact is that his cell phone had quickly gone dark for up to six hours during the time of the family's initial disappearance more than enough time to clean and dispose of bodies without a location being seen or tracked. One thing the prosecution did have their hands on was the interrogation tape of Chase Merritt, one in which he referred to his supposed best friend and business partner repeatedly in the past tense shortly after his disappearance. Joseph
2: Joseph, was one of my best
5: friends and you know obviously I'm my business associate and That's not something i want
0: to live with so joe how tall is
5: he shorter than me i can actually tell you about what he weighed only because i did one of these articles here said his weight was 175 but he was five eight i would guess he was let me see That's about five it? No, he's not only five six. So that's, uh, okay, so about. He was he was definitely visibly uh-huh. shorter than me. Okay. <laughs> His boys were. I mean, they would get up on the kitchen. Oh, I oh, you they to? were they were corporal punishment. Okay. No, she she didn't believe it. She didn't believe in any kind of corporal. She, I swear, she would go. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And she would do that
2: for half an hour until they lost interest in whatever they were doing and go about doing something
1: else. After referring to his best friend and their family, one of the investigators points out just how much Chase is using the past tense to describe them. Chase says at one point, Oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. Though most of the prosecution's case was built on circumstantial evidence highlighting how Chase Merritt presented the motive and opportunity to kill the McStays, there was little verifiable evidence that he actually committed the crimes. Nothing inside the home indicating the murders had been committed there. No indication of cleanup efforts after. No blood, no residual blood spatter, nothing. Apart from the neighbor's grainy surveillance footage possibly placing Chase's truck at the McStay home on the evening of February 4, 2010, there were only a few other key pieces of evidence supporting the entire case. A search warrant of the McStay's Isuzu Trooper dating back to February 2010 revealed low levels of Chase Merritt's DNA was discovered on the steering wheel, the transmission shifter, and the knobs controlling the vehicle's air conditioning system. Though the defense would later contend, such levels of DNA discovery could have just as easily resulted from indirect transfer, say, after shaking someone's hand. But there was no blood evidence anywhere, not in the car and not on Chase. Merritt also revealed in later police interviews that he did not particularly like Summer McStay. And though it's hardly a crime not to like someone, the statements helped build a circumstantial case against McStay's business partner. Merritt's cell phone internet search history also came under intense scrutiny as he searched, quote, how to change an identity in the days immediately following the McStay's disappearance. Others peripherally involved repeatedly looked back to the McStay home for more clues. Though it was never officially designated a crime scene by police, a family friend noted several possible clues in the home in the weeks immediately following the family's disappearance when visiting with the family to prepare the home for sale. The family friend noted three potential clues very early on. First was a missing futon cover in the family room the friend had noted was always there. Police initially dismissed the claim as anything abnormal, but when the McStay family bodies were discovered in shallow graves a few years later, the very futon cover noted missing by the family friend had been used to wrap Joseph's body and was discovered there in the shallow grave. Second was a paint tray filled with dried paint. The friend noted this as strange because he had specifically trained Joseph McStay's mother, Susan Blake, who was assisting with painting the home to finish out the renovations after the family disappeared, how to line the trays with foil to avoid having to clean them up after painting. The minute detail suggested Someone else may have been inside the family home, covering up potential blood and other evidence shortly after the murders. A possible paint stain was later discovered on Summer's bra years later at the shallow gravesite, further validating the observance as a potential clue missed early on by police in the case. Third, the friend noted clothing all over the McStay's master bedroom flooring, A detail he found especially bizarre because he had previously been a roommate of Joseph's and knew he was particularly clean and would never have left such a mess of laundry on the floor. The trial moved slowly as the prosecution laid the groundwork for a case built entirely on circumstantial evidence, ultimately concluding in just under five months in June of this year. The jury deliberated for a painstakingly long six days, And on Friday, June 7th, 2019, they had finally reached a verdict. It was read aloud the following Monday morning.
2: We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Ray Merritt, guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of Penal Code Section 187A of Joseph McStay, we, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Ray Merritt, guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of penal code section 187A of Summer Day. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Ray Merritt, guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of penal code section 187A of Gianni McStay, we the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant Charles Ray Merritt guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of penal code section 187A of Joseph McStay Jr. dated June 7, 2019 for person.
1: During the penalty phase of the trial, the prosecution opened by showing a video of the McStays playing with their two young boys on a swing set, both of them laughing uncontrollably as Joseph and Summer tickled and joked with them. A beautiful California sunset painted the background.
3: And there are, the boys are on the swings, <coughs> woo! Oh, you gotta see these little monkeys. Woo! <coughs> What's up, dudes? <coughs> I'm going to get you, boy. I'm going to get
0: you. I'm going to get you. Yeah, baby, we love you. I'm going to get you, Jay. (gasps) Oh, bro.
1: jury would ultimately recommend that Charles Chase Merritt be put to death for the murders of Summer Joseph Jr. and Gianni McStay. They recommended life in prison without the possibility of parole for his role in the murder of Joseph McStay. He awaits formal sentencing on September 27, 2019. It always comes as a shock knowing that such gruesome, disgusting atrocities sometimes come at the hands of the very people we least suspect, those who we trust the most, with our finances, with our business, and ultimately with our lives. In the case of Joseph McStay, his family, and Charles Merritt, a little business between friends revealed just how important a practice trust is in life, in business, and most importantly, among friends. Before you go, if you're as fascinated by true crime as I am, check out our friends over at Beyond Contempt, a true crime podcast.
0: I'm Renee, and this is Beyond Contempt, true crime. I'll take you on a journey and tell you stories that you've never heard before. Stories like Amy Bishop, Professor Turnmass Murderer, Ruben Borkhart, the victim of a murder-for-hire plot, and the tragic murder of Margaret Anderson, which rocked the small community of Green Bay, Wisconsin.
2: Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.